Good morning. Good to be with you guys today. Kids, fifth grade and under, thank you for being up here to worship with us. You can make your way downstairs. Parents, if your kids have their tags on them, then they can make their way down. If you want to accompany them, then you are more than welcome to do that, if, especially if this is your first time here. The rest of us are going to begin this morning by opening up our Bibles to two places. We're going to start in Exodus 34, but I want you to go ahead and also mark your place in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. We're going to spend a little bit of time in Nehemiah. So Exodus chapter 34 and Nehemiah, you can just begin in chapter 1 as we continue in this God-defined series. We've been looking at the ways in which God has defined himself through the pages of his word. And one of the things that we've been saying throughout this series is that we often develop a false understanding about who God is based on a myriad of things outside of our Bibles. We develop an idea of who God is based on maybe how we were raised, the type of parents that we had or maybe have right now, what we learned in church growing up, what we've been told by others. There's all these things that, that inform us into this idea of who God is. And sometimes we simply define God based on how we feel in the moment. And so if I've done something that I think is good, then I feel like God is pleased with me. Or if I do something that I shouldn't have or don't think I should have done, then I get this feeling that God is upset with me. And I think one of the most pervasive perceptions about God, not only among those in the world, but even among us in this room, even among Christians, is the belief that by and large, this is a God who is perpetually disappointed with his people. More specifically, that this is a God who is perpetually disappointed with me. God might be pleased with the other people around me. They might be doing good things and he's happy with them. But, but for me, I feel that God is disappointed. It's like that church sign that says, don't make me come down there. That's the, the feeling that we have about God. Or, or the dad in the back seat who's saying, don't make me pull the car over. Right? We feel like God is angry and upset. Why? Because when I look back over the course of my life, both my life before I knew Christ, and especially my life since claiming to be a Christ follower, and I consider all the things that I've done, knowingly or unknowingly, that has gone against God's will, then I must come to the conclusion that there is no way that this God could ever be pleased with me. That even the good seasons of my life are marred by the, this feeling that God continues to be angry because of my past mistakes, that I can't do enough good things now to outweigh the things that I did before. Now, we may not say that out loud. We may say all the right things. We say, God loves me. He's forgiven me. He desires to be with me. All, all realities. But how we feel often discloses what we really believe. And I think that all of us believe at varying times that these aren't realities about the way that God feels towards us. Dane Ortland writes, if we were to more closely examine how we related to the Father moment by moment, many of us would tend to believe that this is a life infected with disappointment. Infected with disappointment. But our purpose is to take these false assumptions and these sort of wonky feelings about God and to lay them aside, replacing them with the truth of his word so that little by little, 
We can allow them to be exchanged for God's own insistence on who he is. That's the key. That we would allow these feelings to be replaced with how God insists he is. See, how I feel about God in the moment and how I think God feels about me in the moment doesn't change God. He is constant even when my perception of him is ever changing. So with that and in considering this feeling that God is constantly angry and disappointed with me personally, let's look together in Exodus 34 so that we can see how God describes himself. We're going to look in verse 6. This is God speaking to Moses. He says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generations. Now that's a very dense, sort of hefty description of God. And perhaps one of the clearer ways in scripture that God has defined himself. The words of these verses are used over and over again by various authors in our Bibles as they recounted what God said about himself in order to remind themselves about who he truly is regardless of the circumstances that they were in. And that's what I hope for us to do today, to break down this description of God in small part and look at it through the lens of Nehemiah and through the history of the Israelites so that we can walk away with a right understanding about the nature and the bent, the, the lean of God's heart. Primarily, we're going to focus on this truth that God has said about himself, that God is slow to anger and abounding in love. Slow to anger and abounding in love. We start with slow to anger. The other day, Amanda and I were sitting in our living room talking, and, and I think I shared something about how I was working on being more patient with Parker. Parker's at home watching me right now tell, tell this story about him. So just know that I'm not hiding this story from him. But I, I was talking to Amanda about how I was working on being more patient with him and not becoming angry so quickly when he pushes that same button over and over and over and over and over again. We all know as parents what it means for our kids to push that button. See, impatience is one of my biggest weaknesses as a parent. I grow impatient. Right now, we're working on his attitude. The words that he uses when he talks to us, especially when we get him up for school at 6.30 in the morning. If you have met this kid at 6.30 in the morning, then you would know he is not the same kid that you see walking around the church. He's not a very happy person in the morning. He's not a very happy person when things in our home aren't going the way that he wants them to go. And so if I tell him something that he doesn't want to hear then he can very quickly descend from this very happy child to a high-pitched monster. That's how I describe him, right? He can descend very quickly, and it just, it just grates on me. It just gets to me to, to hear that. And so we're, we're having this conversation. Amanda and I are sitting in the room. We're having this conversation, and Parker comes bounding into the room as happy as can be. You know, he's had a good day. And, and I stopped what I was saying to Amanda, and I looked at him, and I said, buddy, we're, you need to get your shoes on because we are going to be going to the store here in a few minutes. And this kid lost his mind. I mean, it was immediate. He just 
descended into this high-pitched monster, and he, he began to demand that we were not going to do that, that his mom was going to do that, and we were going to stay home, and I couldn't make him go. There was nothing I could do to get him out of the house, and he just began demanding all of these things. And what happened with me? I went off. <laughs> like, I immediately snapped back at him. I, I raised my voice. I told him exactly how it was going to be and how inappropriate and disrespectful he was acting. Both, both realities, but spoken by me in a way that wasn't, like, overtly graceful, right? Like, I wouldn't want other people to, to see that side of me. And after he stormed out of the room, Amanda looked at me, and she said, slow to anger. <laughs> like... <laughs> Like, yeah, I can see you're working on it, but maybe you should work a little harder on this. Needless to say, we all went to the store. I got exactly what I wanted. You know, I, I got the point of what she was trying to communicate to me. She saw this from the outside. She saw the, the, this nine-year-old child who, who has an excuse because he's nine turn on a dime. And then she saw me, a 35-year-old man, turn on a dime. I went right there immediately. It took no provoking whatsoever to get me there. And the point is that I'm a human who sometimes, who oftentimes has a difficult time controlling my emotions, and, and those emotions include anger. What comes out of my mouth when things aren't going my way? What comes out of my mouth when Parker isn't behaving the way that I think he should behave or when the expectations that I have for my marriage aren't being met the way that I think they should be met? I can become angry in unjustified and even sinful ways, not in a way that seeks reconciliation, but in selfish ways that seeks my interests above the interests of others. See, all of us, whether or not we care to admit it, we have a threshold for what will set us over the top. The threshold of some is greater than others, and that threshold comes out in various ways. But the truth is that in our humanity, all of us are just a short distance from saying or doing something that we shouldn't when our emotions are high, when we're pushed. God, on the other hand, defines himself as slow to anger. One visual this word gives us is, is being long of nostrils. The opposite would be an angry bull pawing the ground, breathing loudly, his nostrils flared, ready to charge. It's, it's anger. But to be long in the nose is symbolic of someone who doesn't arouse to anger quickly or easily. For someone like that, for God, it takes a lot of accumulated provoking to draw out his anger a higher threshold than any of us in our humanity could begin to imagine. And yet God can be, has been, provoked to anger. Wrath, justified wrath, is a part of his nature and his character. I can't separate it from him because his word shows it to me. I see it in the pages of my Bible. He even says there in Exodus 34, 7, that he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And of course, we see this most clearly through the story of God's own chosen people in our Old Testaments. If you marked your place in your Bible, go ahead and flip over with me to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1 in your Old Testament. We're going to jump to a couple places here. 
If God's anger takes a lot of accumulated provoking to draw out, then the Israelites had certainly mastered what it meant to push that button. Just like Parker's mastered pushing my button, it seems that the Israelites had figured out where God's button was, and the history of this people is marked by rebellion against this God. Even when God described himself there in Exodus 34 as slow to anger and abounding in love, he's speaking to Moses on the heels of these people forming and worshiping a golden calf that they would give credit for rescuing them out of Egypt. You talk about provoking, that is one way to provoke God, but yet God gives us the description in the middle of this. Let's look together beginning in Nehemiah verse 1 of chapter 1. Nehemiah writes, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. Now, there's a great deal of history wrapped up in those first two verses of Nehemiah. What Nehemiah is referencing here as he talks about the remnant left in Jerusalem of those who had survived the exile is the Hebrew people having been taken captive by the Babylonians and removed from the promised land that God had told them that he was going to give them right from the beginning when he called Abraham. It was a captivity and an exile that God had told them would happen if they continued in their pattern of sin and rebellion and disobedience. God is slow to anger, but nonetheless, we see his wrath as a result of these people choosing to reject his way of life. A way of life that by all means was correct, was right. It was the right way to live, and yet they rejected it and instead wanted to do their own thing. God had said in Jeremiah 25, 8 through 11, that because they would not listen to him, He was going to summon this peoples from the north, the Babylonians, and bring them against his people. He promised them that they would become a wasteland and would serve the Babylonians for 70 years. The Israelites had very effectively aroused God's anger, and this was their punishment. 70 years in a land not their own, serving a nation that did not follow their God. And this is where Nehemiah finds himself toward the end of that 70-year period serving a Persian king, a Persian king because God had also set the Persians against the Babylonians at the end of that period because he had promised to punish them as well. Nehemiah describes himself as the cupbearer to the king there in verse 10 of chapter 1, which meant that he was very close to the king. His job was to make sure that the king's drink wasn't poisoned before he handed it to him. It was a risky job. And so God had allowed his chosen people to be taken captive. He'd not let their sin go unpunished. In fact, true to how God described himself there in Exodus 34, this punishment would indeed impact the children and the grandchildren of those who had rebelled. So you can fit three or four generations in a 70-year period. And the children and the grandchildren that were born in captivity to these Israelites were being punished for the sins of their fathers and their grandfathers. That's what God is talking about. And so God is slow to anger, but nevertheless can be provoked to anger. And in his perfectly just and righteous nature, he will deal with the sins of the guilty. He cannot leave it alone. 
But there's a primary difference between the kind of anger that God displays when provoked and the kind of anger that I display when provoked. See, my anger often tends to be spontaneous, unproductive, unhealthy, and at times sinful. Anger simply for the sake of anger. Simply an emotional response to my circumstances and a frustration that things aren't going the way that I want them to go. But this is never so with God. When provoked, his wrath is always purposeful, always productive, always useful, always appropriate. In fact, this this wrath of God, the anger of God, is almost always shown for the purpose of restoration and redemption. That's why God displays it. So he's slow to anger, but what? abounding in love. Slow to anger, abounding in love. That even in the Israelite exile to Babylon and the promise given through Jeremiah that they would be punished for their sin, we see another promise take shape. Many of us are familiar with that famous passage, Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. We have it hanging on our walls because it's such an encouraging verse. But do you know the context of that verse? See, the context of that verse is right here in the middle of this 70-year exile to Babylon. You can see it if you go back to verse 10. God says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. My life group, a while back, we went through verses that were often taken out of context, and I I think I referenced Jeremiah 29, 11. I said, who has this hanging on their walls? And then I asked, how many years have you spent in Babylonian captivity? That's what it means to take a verse out of context. We can still apply it here. It's still an encouragement to us because we know God has plans for us, but Jeremiah is giving God's word in the middle of this punishment. And it's in the books of Ezra and here in Nehemiah that we begin to see the fulfillment of this promise and this reality about God that we learned from Exodus 34. It's this reality right here, that the bent of God's heart is toward mercy over wrath. The lean of God's heart, if he's slow to anger and abounding in love, the lean of God's heart is toward mercy over wrath. So Nehemiah had received word from his brother that those who had survived the exile were back in Jerusalem. Slowly they were beginning to come back and they were in trouble. And he also found out that the wall of the city had been torn down. In fact, when Babylon laid siege to Jerusalem, they ravaged that whole area. They destroyed the temple and they tore down the wall around the city. For the Hebrew people, this would have been the worst thing imaginable. The temple represented the dwelling place of God, the place where prayers were heard and sacrifices for sin were made and where a person could be closer to God than any place on earth. God had said, this is where I'm going to dwell among my people in this temple, in this city. And so the destruction of the temple and the tearing down of the wall of this city represented the broken relationship between God and his people. The ultimate display of his wrath and the punishment for their sin and rebellion. Perhaps it it represented the belief that they had provoked him to anger for the last time. 
For God to allow his temple and city to be destroyed meant, must have meant that they had finally gone too far and perhaps there was no longer going to be a God with them. That he was no longer going to be walking with them. So it's no wonder that Nehemiah is noticeably sad as he takes the king his wine there beginning in chapter 2. The king looks at Nehemiah, sees his sadness, and he asks him why it is that his face is downcast. Look at Nehemiah's response. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And so the king asks Nehemiah, what is it that you want, Nehemiah? What are you asking for? Nehemiah tells him that he wants to go back to Jerusalem and to begin rebuilding the wall. Ezra had already gone back with permission to begin rebuilding the temple. Nehemiah records that it pleased the king to send him back, and he even gave him letters so that he could have safe passage all the way back to Jerusalem so that the work could begin. And much of Nehemiah's account, much of this book in our Old Testaments, is about the work of rebuilding the wall in spite of intense opposition that often threatened to thwart their progress. Within the stories of Ezra returning to build the temple and Nehemiah returning to build the wall around the city, what do we see? We see God's providence allowing this to happen. One of the themes in Nehemiah is a complete dependence upon God. When you read through this book, you see Nehemiah pray over and over and over again that God would give him success, that God would sustain him, that God would provide for him. And that's what happens. That in God's providence, he allows them to go back and to begin rebuilding. You see, if God had completely abandoned them, had finally given up on them as maybe they thought, if, he'd, if they'd provoked him for the last time, then he never would have allowed this to happen. He never would have allowed them to go back and to begin the work of seeing Jerusalem rebuilt. Even the king seeing sadness on the face of his cupbearer was an answer to Nehemiah's prayer in chapter 1 that God would give him success by granting him the favor of the king. And that's exactly what God does for him. You see, the bent of God's heart, the lean of God's heart, is toward mercy over wrath. Wrath and justice are a part of his nature, but they serve a redemptive purpose to draw his people back into alignment with his will. And this is where you and I really need to lean in and understand what God is saying about himself there in Exodus 34 and what it means for his heart to lean or to be bent towards mercy. You see, my heart is not bent towards mercy. It is not bent towards forgiveness and love. As I I illustrated earlier, angry and disappointment come easy to me. I don't really have to be provoked to them. I do, on the other hand, need to be provoked towards forgiveness and love, as Hebrews 10.24 says, provoke each other to love and good deeds. These come difficult to me, and because they do, I project that onto God and believe that this is also his default position. Anger and disappointment, while love and forgiveness are only shown occasionally. But the opposite is true with God. That's why the Old Testament speaks of God being provoked to anger by his people over and over again. But not once are we told that God is needing to be or is provoked to love or mercy. 
His anger requires provocation, but his mercy is constantly at the ready. It takes no provoking at all to do what comes naturally, to do what, what, what my whole being is made up of. And that's why I started this morning by considering how we often feel that God is in a constant state of anger or disappointment towards us when what he's telling us is that this is not his natural default disposition. Lamentations 3.33, written by Jeremiah right in the middle of this exile, says, for God does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. And there are two things to note in this passage. First is that God does allow grief and affliction. We know that. He does bring it on us according to his purposes and his plans. He did punish Israel for their rebellion and disobedience as his nature demands. He sent exactly what they deserved. He did exactly what he said he was going to do. But Jeremiah also tells us that God does not do it willingly, or in other words, there seems to be a part of him that is pained when he has to inflict punishment. It's the old adage of the father disciplining his son when he says, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. The way that you're going to feel is not going to be worse than the way that I'm going to feel. And what we have to understand about this way that God defines himself is that his deepest heart is bent towards merciful restoration. That even when I face hardships, even when we face hardships and challenges and grief and affliction and sometimes punishment, all of it allowed by God, it isn't out of a default state of anger and disappointment. But in order that we can experience God more fully, and be brought back into right relationship with him if that is what's needed. And I think that throughout our lives, we have to be constantly reminded of this, especially in those seasons where God feels the most distant and all we can detect are reproachful eyes and a wagging finger. That I I may understand these truths right now, I may let these truths sink in, but tomorrow a little bit of that is going to fade and I have to be reminded over, over and over again. David shared at communion, one of the reasons that we take communion is to be reminded every single week of God's love displayed through the cross. That we are in need of constant reminders of these things. We have to tell ourselves and preach them to us over and over again. But how do we remind ourselves when our nature And often Satan himself whispers in our ear that God is not pleased and that we might as well give up. That's what he's trying to get us to do, to just give up. I'll flip over to Nehemiah chapter 9 and we'll see how the Israelites did this, how they reminded themselves of what God had done. After rebuilding the temple through Ezra's leadership and rebuilding the wall by Nehemiah's leadership after these were completed, Ezra gathers the whole crowd of those who were present in order to read the law out loud. And as the law was being read aloud from morning until noon and the meaning was given so that the people could understand, Nehemiah records that the people had been weeping. The people had been mourning at the reading of God's word. Why? 
because they were being reminded of just how short they had fallen, of the standard that God had for them, of the times that they had disobeyed. And perhaps in those moments, they were fixating on God's anger and his disappointment as we so often do in our lives. But Nehemiah says to them in the middle of their weeping, do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the Levites, the the priests, they stood before the people as they confessed their sins and told them to stand up and praise this God who is from everlasting to everlasting. What follows next, beginning in verse 5 of chapter 9, is a recounting of all that God had done for his people, a looking back over the history of this people. They start with God's creation of the heavens and the earth and how he gave life to everything. How he chose Abram and proclaimed that he would build a nation through him. They recounted the the rescue of this nation from the heavy hand of the Egyptians through the plagues, the dividing of the sea so that they could finally get away from the Egyptian army and how God was leading them through a desert and a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The giving of the law at Mount Sinai and how God was teaching them the best life teaching them how to live life the way that God designed it to be lived, the right way to live life. How he provided for their physical needs in in the desert by giving them manna and, and quail that they could trust in this God to provide for their needs. The Levites even reminded the people of the disobedience of their ancestors and how they refused to listen. But look at what they say about God in verse 17. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them, even in the midst of their rebellion and disobedience. I guarantee that they were quoting God's own definition of himself from the history of their ancestors, the very definition, the very description that we read in Exodus 34. Why? Because they had to be reminded of it. They're weeping at the hearing of God's word because they were reminded of their sin and believed that God was a God of disappointment and anger. And yet Nehemiah takes them all the way back, all the way back to Exodus and says, but you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. They're reminding themselves of how God described himself. Not of the way they felt in the moment, but of this God who defined who he is for them. In this one chapter, over and over again, we see the pattern. We see the rebellion, the the rejection, the disobedience, and how over and over again, God restored this people and drew them back to himself. That's the final truth for us today. That looking back on what God has done serves to remind us of his grace and love. This is what the priests were trying to get the people to understand. That in this moment, they may have felt that the bent of God's heart was toward anger and disappointment. But when they looked back and they recounted their journey and all that God had done for them up to that moment, in the backdrop of a once destroyed temple and a once destroyed wall, both of which which had been rebuilt, that God's mercy Compassion, 
love and faithfulness were undeniable to them. They couldn't deny these attributes of God. That this isn't a God who is in a constant state of anger and disappointment, but one who had to be provoked to these, even though the natural bent of his heart has always been merciful, redemption, and restoration. Now you think about your life. Think over the course of your life if you've been a Christian for any length of time. Think about all that has brought you to this moment right now. As you sit in your chair, as you sit in your living room and you watch from home. Consider the amount of times that you've chosen your own path. That you've rejected God's will for you that you've willingly disobeyed the desire that he has for you to live the life of his choosing, a life that he has proven to be good and full over and over again. Think about all of those times, but at the same time, think back over the course of your Christian life and think back about the times that you felt God sustaining the power. The moments when his voice was clear and he drew you out of darkness. The times when you were more aware of the presence of his spirit living inside of you. And the times when his word was deep encouragement to you. The times when you felt God's peace that surpasses understanding. We can't understand it because it doesn't come from the world. It comes from God. Think about the seasons of restoration and and peace and hope where you've truly experienced the joy of your salvation and were able to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Why? Because he was with you. Because he is with you. And now you tell me, in spite of the seasons of disobedience, when you think about all that God has done, is this a God who is bent towards anger or is this a God whose heart is ultimately bent towards mercy this is how God has defined himself and this is how he has proven himself over and over again over the course of our lives when we think back and we recount all of these things And so my prayer for you today is that you would let go of the notion that the Christian life is one infected with disappointment and replace it with God's own insistence on who he is, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love. Stand up and let's pray. Father, these are deep truths that we need to be reminded of daily because every day that we don't ground ourselves in your insistence about who you are through your word we are inundated with lies lies that come from the world lies that come from Satan lies that come from our own heart Father don't let our feelings Don't let our feelings tell us who you are. May we look into the truth of your word and may we look back over the course of our lives and think 
about how you have brought us to this moment and all those times that you've sustained us and provided for us and loved us and drawn us out and know that even your punishment is done in love, that even your anger is purposeful, that even your judgment draws us towards redemption. May we know of those truths today and may we be reminded of them every day every day that you allow us to walk with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.